to hear from our old Dharma brother, recently returned from China, Denke Raul Mankayo. Denke started practicing in Paris back in the 70s and came to Berkeley and landed on Dwight Way, uh, Berkeley's Endo's original home, and then came along here to Russell Street and practiced over 40 years before establishing his own practice place, Blue Mountain Zendo in El Cerrito. He received Dharma transmission from Sojin Roshi and had the blessings of Sojin Roshi to establish that temple out in the world in 2017. He is a training analyst in China, uh, Lekhanian therapy. He's also a Zen teacher in America as well as a psychoanalyst. Denke, thank you for coming today. Let's hear what you got to say. <laughs> thank you, Ross. Let's see what I have to say. Uh, it's nice to be here. It's nice to see Ho-san, good old friend, and nice to see all of you. Um, and some new faces too, uh, which is nice to see people coming into practice. Um, so I'm going to talk about this uh, trip to China. I mean, it started maybe six years ago, while I, while I was still here, I had a couple of students uh, in China, and they both were Lacanian students and Zen students. And so for the Zen part, we studied the, uh, the Platform Sutra in Chinese and in English, and they taught me Chinese, and I've been learning Chinese. Uh, uh, I studied for two years, which just gave me enough to start a conversation, but not really continue it or finish it. Um, and uh, so this time, I went um, invited by my students both as a Lacanian analyst and as a Zen teacher. Because they love, they call it shaman, because it originally began in China, uh, before Japan. And the head of Soto Shu, which is our school of Zen, uh, was in China, Dongshan. And uh, and I talked about Dongshan. The last talk I gave here was maybe two years ago, um, which also was the talk after Sojin died. So 
everybody was impacted by that and everybody was grieving and it felt great to come here and talk about my grief of my lack of grief thereof which is also a form of acknowledging him Sojin uh, the way Dongshan wanted to be acknowledged after he died um, and now it's been two years I guess since my last talk more or less and now things have changed and Hosan is the abbot and the old students are still practicing here and getting along with him more or less, yeah. more or less. <laughs> there's always ignorance and delusion you know we think we come here for enlightenment but the enlightenment just put us right back into our ignorance and delusion so that never ends if nobody's told you that uh, that the aim of enlightenment is the realization of ignorance and the many forms of ignorance uh, and in analysis we deal with the ignorance of our fantasies about people in the world and talk about that and work it through so that when we relate to people we don't carry the past in a chip on our shoulder um, so um, so I stayed for two months and I was in three cities in Shanghai uh, Chengdu and Nanjing Chengdu is uh, closest to Tibet and you can go to Tibet because it's China now um, and that's a kind of controversial thing because uh, Dalai Lama escaped and there was a brief war which the Tibetans were totally unmatched because they didn't have an army and uh, they didn't have a really a secular state and many of the needs of the people weren't cared for so the Chinese did what they always do which they go in and they build bridges you know and they build roads and they build hospitals and all of that so uh, but they're preserving Tibetan and Chinese and Tibetan culture and, and Tibetan language um, and they have a, a copy practice and a substitute for the Dalai Lama and the copy practice is probably not genuine the way that the old practice was but they've China has adopted officially the Communist Party adopted Buddhism as a religion for the country and the reason they did that was because uh, they wanted to help the Chan 
uh, priests, a few there are, to they're mostly Mahayana Buddhists. That's the main form of Buddhism now. Um, and they wanted people, how does a material, Marxist materialism, which has spiritual aims, uh, deal with spiritual needs of the people? And they know they can't go against it because the majority of the people, well, there's 280 million, it's not the majority, but it's the biggest uh, group, religious group. Um, and so it's something that the people like and people identify with nonviolence. And even though there was a violent revolution, the Chinese are, have prepared the military, but they're against war. And they always contrast the U.S. has gotten all these wars over the years, and they never have. Um, and so the people are very friendly, you know, they always smile. They seem to be happy. There's no violence or crime for that matter. There's no guns. So, but as I always say, I'm not taking sides, but, um, you know, we need to focus on our problems, not on their problems. And they need to focus on their problems that they have and not in our problems. And they have this, you know, I, I kept informed because they have this English news. And they're very good and they always present two perspectives and they try to present the American, always have somebody who represents the American perspective. And, but what I was, while I was there, uh, you know, Kissinger came and uh, the Secretary of State and Treasurer of State and, you know, they all very well received and well spoken of in the news. So it looks like the two biggest countries and the two most powerful countries are not in a war coalition. I don't know what happens is, you know, the Republicans get on power, but they initially, Kissinger was Nixon, it was Nixon's idea. So it was a Republican idea to open up to China. And you see all these American businesses there, you know, I ate porridge, the same porridge that we have here for breakfast, we used to have here for breakfast, I can tell you fried chicken. <laughs> so they all, they give this Chinese uh, flair. So the other city, Nanjing, well, Shanghai is the most uh, Western of cities. And where most, a lot of foreigners live, although I didn't see too many. Um, and that's where, you know, they, they, they provided some refuge to 
refugees of the Holocaust and Al Tribe family was there and I went to the house where they lived. Al Tribe and his family. Um, now everybody's conversant with Chan as a representative of Buddhism, but the, the temples I went to, each city had like three temples attended by common people. There's a fair amount of people, they are not tourists. Um, and they all have a Chan building, you know, or a Chan component from the history of the past. But the monks don't practice Sazen anymore. They, they uh, recite sutra standing up. That's their main practice. So they chant the sutras um, standing up. <clears throat> and Buddha is worshipped as a Mita Buddha. which is similar to Jesus, right, is a god. Amitabha Buddha is seen as a god and as a deity. And people go ask for favors, you know, like they go to church or synagogue, asking for things for them or their family, their loved one. But they also ask for a pure heart. And you can feel that, um, that Buddhist precepts uh, are part of their, their life. Uh, and the government always says, oh, you should help people. If you're in the subway, somebody needs help, you should help them. If you're on the street, somebody needs help, you should help them. And mostly they do. And in addition, in the, in the Mahayana temples of Amitabha, invariably they have a statue, and these are big statues, huh? huge. Um, they have statues of Lao Tse and the other Taoist sages. And they're all seen as deities. Um, even though these are deities that gave people precepts. Pre precepts to live by. And, you know, people can go wherever they, they want to. There's no police. I thought they were going to police in the streets and kind of watching. You're a foreigner. You're, you're not Asian. Somebody told me, oh, they, they're going to be watching you. Uh, but nobody did. There was nobody watching me. And most of the 800 million that were lifted out of poverty in China, 800 million, were all peasants in the countryside, and they moved to the cities. And in the cities, they went to school and they studied, they were trained, and they became a huge 
middle class. So it looks like here, you know, the freeways, they're all new. They look like American freeways. Uh, the trains don't because they go everywhere and they're just fast trains, which are really amazing. So the government gave this new middle class who used to be peasants all kinds of, um, you know, they have phones, they have computers, they have TVs, they have malls, which look just like American malls. Um, and they're building all these new electrical cars, you know, the Tesla's there as a factory in Shanghai, but they're building all these new Chinese electrical cars, which are better looking than Tesla, the Tesla car. And they're a fourth of the price. So you can buy, the Tesla is not as expensive there because everything is cheaper in China than here or Europe. Um, but they just said, government policy, we're switching to electrical cars and started ma making them massively. Um, and, and cheap. And because there's no political opposition, they're getting everybody off their gas cars and giving them facilities to buy electrical cars. They don't have problems with, they solve their uh, problems with pollution, air pollution. So the government is more a meritocracy than an autocracy, as they tell us here. That is an autocracy. In fact, the people voted into the party, they, they started at the village level, and there they just compete in open elections. Once the leaders in the villages are selected, then they come into the party and then they have to prove themselves. So Xi Jinping was one of the ones responsible for large areas of, of China being developed. So people are very thankful to him. And of course, there's always some political machinations behind the, the scenes. The only thing that is, is restricted is uh, to watch the internet. You can't watch the outside internet. There's a firewall. And so the Chinese are not able to see news from the outside. Uh, but most of the news, the ones I watched in English, uh, were reported. But I couldn't communicate uh, with here over the internet, so I couldn't use Gmail. The only thing that worked was texting. And uh, so I texted Ross. I always took pictures of the temples. Uh, 
and texted Ross and showed it to them, but that was the extent of my communication with America. So, uh, we're studying uh, Dogen's Genja Coleman at Blumont. And Suzuki Roshi, in his commentary on the Genja Koan, said that in China, Buddhists established new precepts. Because in India, the precepts originated first when there were problems in the Sangha. There weren't any precepts first. Then when problems, conflicts started affecting the community, then they develop precepts. So it's not the other way around. Um, because precepts is for how you live your life. How you acknowledge your delusions. And how you try to make life a little better. Um, the Indian priests, the Indian uh, monks practice all the time. They didn't have sashins, they were always sitting. Because the community supported them. They didn't have to work for their living. In fact, it was forbidden for them to work the land. Um, so, but the Chinese Buddhists didn't do that and couldn't do that because the people wouldn't support them. So they had to support themselves. And the way they, they supported themselves was through the, through the way of precepts, of how to work, the right way to work, the right work to relate to other people. Um, the, the monks in China don't marry and sees and Buddhists as perverse. The Japanese usually are seen as perverse because of what they did to them, you know, when they invaded, uh, you know, in World War II, and they committed massacres of people. They killed women and children who weren't fighting them. Uh, and so, on the other hand, they respect them because Japan developed very quickly um, and they respect their culture. But they see this Zen teachers being allowed to marry in Japan as a perversion of the, the Dharma, as a corruption of the Dharma. So that's kind of the traditional way the Chinese Buddhists see Japanese Buddhists. Although, of course, it wouldn't be, we know the people in Japan, the Zen teachers in Japan, that favored the war and thought that the war was bodhisattvas fighting the war for the Dharma. But in the name of the Dharma, they did horrible things. So now there's a kind of respect for the uh, for the influence that Zen has in America and Europe. 
So they see it as a kind of successful Asian culture that succeeded in the West. So they, they get some respect for that, but not for marrying. So, you know, I had to do, find my way through calling it Zen and Chan. But the last book I wrote, not, not the last one, but a recent book that I wrote on Lacan and Chan uh, drew a lot of interest in Asia. And thought that Chan provided a, a way to understand Lacan, which is like Dogen, is very difficult to read. Um, because he doesn't make arguments, you know, he, he, his writing is poetic writing rather than rational argumentation. And the way I deal with comparison, because Suzuki Roshi said that, you know, in Zen we, we shouldn't compare. That's the drawback of the intellect, that we're always comparing Zen with every, everything else. So he discouraged us from comparing. You know, Zen is, is is a thing in itself, and psychoanalysis is a thing in itself. But the way I approach it is in terms of similarities and differences. And I also say that Zen is for general discontent. You know, so suffering can be divided into general discontent and clinical discontent. <laughs> So we deal with the general discontent, but when somebody comes to us with clear clinical symptoms, we refer them to a mental health specialist. This is what we should do here, too. Or what we established doing here some years ago. Um, <clears throat> so, from sitting zazen all the time to the precept of living our life according to the Dharma, even if we're not sitting, uh, that's what the Chinese did with the Indian Zen, with the Indian Dhyana. So they could also make a living. Um, if you're a priest, you can also have a family in Japan. Um, but there are many lay teachers uh, in China. And if you teach as a Buddhist, you have to teach as a layperson. 
because the monks are allowed only in the uh, monasteries approved by the government. And they select the leader of the Buddhist community on the basis that they're not anti-communist. Um, so the society is, is pretty controlled. Um, so I, I didn't visit those monasteries, just the, the city temples. So we have precepts, but sazen is also a practice of realization. It's not just how to live a moral life, it's, a, it's the values of enlightenment. With realization at the center. And realization is uh, a form of understanding, but it's not our understanding. The understanding comes to us, comes to us, and comes from us. Um, but comes from the ancestors, which we repeat and uh, realize. Just like in Zazen, we realize the skandhas. And this is a kind of psychology. So Chan is, is and uh, Mahayana is very psychologically oriented. So we speak about the mind. We don't speak about the soul. So there is no soul in Buddhism. But in Western spirituality, everybody talks about the soul. Um, the soul is sort of like being spirited. Um, like African-American spirituality has a lot of soul in it. You know, when it's musical, and it's loud and it's noisy, but it has soul. That's the true sense of soul in terms of being spirited, rather than simply quieted down. Zazen is as a kind of quietness. Um, but sometimes the Dharma has to be expressed in joy, too. And they have many melodies, you know. The Heart Sutra has many melodies in China. And they're, they're not mono, monotonic. Um, so, 
We just focus on the mantra. But they focus on the things that interact with people's life, you know, melodies that are evocative of love or kindness. Um, so, <clears throat> when we when we sit in Sazen, so the Heart Sutra says uh, the Bodhisattva practices Prajna Paramita and realizes that uh, the skandhas which is kind of a heap, right? It's a meaning of a heap. But I don't know how it sounds to you, but heap sounds like like we're a heap of what? Wheat or uh, love. Huh? A heap of love. A heap of you use that expression in English? I like to think of it that way. Huh? I like to think of it that way, a heap of uh, love. I see. But, but I like bread, so wheat works too. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's really perceptions. And most of our perceptions are colored by our thinking and our language. So we say, what is Buddha? And if the answer is the tree in the middle of the garden, is that a tree? The way we use language to perceive and describe a tree? No, the tree is the thing in itself, beyond language. But we have to perceive that directly. And so meditation quiets the compulsive thinking in our mind. Especially when the thinking is animated by strong emotions, like love or hate or envy, jealousy, that results in perceptions that create conflicts among the Sangha. You know, we've all seen that over the years, all the fights, people's fights uh, with Sojin, people leaving, people coming back, um, and that's all part of the practice. So it's not just a practice of enlightenment, it's also a practice of delusion and ignorance. And ignorance means that we think the world is outside, is out there. Not that our mind creates it. So that's the basic definition of ignorance, that we ignore how we construct the world in our own mind. And then it's not knowing who you are. But when we don't know who we are, 
then we're truly ourselves at that moment. It's not that we're confused about uh, our impulses, right? That's a different type of ignorance, <coughs> or our fantasies. Uh, but don't know mind, we're free of compulsive thinking, then we have absolute freedom. And so that no, don't know mind is beginner's mind, because you don't know anything. And so when people ask you a question, if you don't know the answer, it's not good to pretend to know the answer. Right? Uh, you don't fill in the gap if you don't know. You say, I don't know. And when you say, I don't know, then a question, I mean, an answer comes from inside in a second moment. So wisdom is a kind of unknown knowing because it comes from a place beyond us, just like enlightenment is beyond us. And then if we can sit without a concept of self, which is always coming up, you know, uh, less the more mature you are, but a thought of recognition or a desire for recognition always, always coming up. And you can't go to somebody and say, oh, why don't you recognize me? I mean, you could if you wanted to have a serious conversation with somebody. But that recognition is never granted. It's a kind of misrecognition. When you want your ego recognized, and sometimes we can't tell that it's our ego who wants the recognition, it never is never satisfying because it means we're not recognizing something within ourselves. <coughs> so what comes up once you drop that in Zazen is the experience of beginner's mind and a wondrous state of mind. Usually we say, the guru says, beginner's mind is nothing special. But actually, Sojin recognized that it's a splendid and wondrous state of mind. And at the same time, we kind of purport it's nothing special. So, and we don't pursue the wondrous state of mind. So over time, as we dropped up our delusions, um, what arises is joy. 
And we practice because this is a joyous practice. The realization in sasen should make us joyous. Of course, we're not always joyous. I mean, sometimes we have to be sad. But then that becomes uh, a cultivation of the joy. Once the object uh, of loss is let go. So that's why, you know, Sojin or Dongshan didn't want his, their students to grieve. Because he thought grieving is a misunderstanding about where he's going. And that he's never left us. And coming to this place and seeing all your faces, familiar faces, uh, he's still here. How are we doing with time? It's five after we go to about 11.15 or so. Okay, so we have another 15 minutes? About 10 to 15 minutes, yeah. We'll allow for questions or just continue okay. delivery. So, Shushuki Roshi, in his commentary of the Genja Koan, I'm going to read a, a paragraph, says, the secret of all the teachings of Buddhism is how to live in each moment. So the moment has precedence over how to practice asana. Because you live in the moment whether you're sitting or you're not sitting. And where is your mind in the moment? Right? So we practice to live each moment like we practice asana. How to obtain absolute freedom moment after moment? So we, we should feel uh, free rather than afflicted. Or or having a, uh, afflicted emotions. Moment after moment, we existed into dependency with past and future and all existence. In short, if you practice us and concentrating on your breathing moment after moment, you will be keeping the precepts, helping yourself and helping others and attaining liberation. And you can say attaining liberation, but who's keeping you a prisoner? Right? That's what's one of the questions of the um, the four disciples of uh, Wenyang. Right? Uh, 
And he asked him how to free his mind. And Winang said, well, who's holding you? And couldn't find self or other holding him. So attaining liberation includes that koan. We do not aim for or emphasize some particular state of mind or some particular teaching, because the teaching has to manifest in the truth of the practice. If the teaching doesn't manifest in the truth of the practice and how we practice with each other, then that's not a real teaching. It's just, that's the intellectual understanding. So the intellectual understanding has to translate uh, into how we live our life in truth. Rather, we emphasize how we understand and how we bring the truth into practice. This practice does not mean some particular practice only. When we say Zen, Zen includes all the activity of our life. So that's what we do, you know, here and in Zen. We sit, we do walking meditation, we do meditation outside. Then we have work period. We used to have three meals also, um, an open period. So many different variations of the form. It's not just that we come in here, we sit, and then we never leave, <laughs> you know, or we don't walk. They may move, you know, uh, the monks who practice like that, they may move, but they don't do other activities. And that's quite different. I'm not sure that we will all be drawn to that, if that was the, the practice of Zen. So Zen includes all of our life, and that's why we're drawn to it. This way, Buddhist philosophy was actualized in said practice. The oneness of Zazen practice as everyday activity was brought to society. The brought to society is what you feel in China. There's, I, I felt Chinese in China, even though I could uh, speak Chinese well, the sensitivity uh, was there. So, the Chan has been brought to the general society. Um, and the equivalent for that here is Christianity. But God is, Buddha is not God, although in the, in the in the three bodies of the Buddha, the Dharmakaya, 
is like God. And enlightenment is beyond us and it's beyond our, our understanding. So we can get there, but not through our own understanding. So Suzuki Roshi says that sand is the source of philosophy and the source of art and the source of religion for everybody. For any religion, there's sand in that religion or practice. In art, uh, in aesthetic beauty, there's also Zen. So it's part of our life, part of our ordinary life. Okay, excuse me, in the few minutes remaining, would you care to field a couple questions? Oh, I thought the, when I ended it was when the questions started. Um, well, it depends when you end. We do have a, yeah. Okay. We try to live, uh, we try to end around eleven fifteen, eleven twenty ish or so. It's okay. not a hard and steadfast, but um, okay, we can end here or begin Q and A. Q and A. Yes. So uh, I'll call on people either online or in person because Danke might not know your names. So either yellow uh, virtual hand or in person, and Pauline will give you a mic to uh, project your voice. No, I forgot your name. <laughs> Mike McVeigh. Yeah. It's good to see you here, Nick. Huh? It's good to see you here. Um, you said something about grief and um, grief based on misunderstanding. I get a sense there's a lot of failure to grieve that's based on a much more profound ignorance than people who are grieving based upon misunderstanding. Right. Well, that's a different, it's a psychological understanding of grief. That people have to do grief because otherwise they get depressed. And then it becomes a clinical form of suffering. Mm -hmm. But somehow we have to hold those two. You know, that, that we have to grieve. Um, I remember when my mother died, when she died right there, uh, I started crying uncontrollably. Yeah. And the doctors and the Christian priest and the, my uncle and Huna started saying, oh, shut up. Why are you crying like that? You know? And I just cried like a child who had lost his mother. But then it was gone. There was no grief. And I felt this incredible kind of closeness with my mother that any time now I can invoke her if I, if I need her presence or her counsel. Of course, what dies is they don't admonish you anymore. <laughs> they don't punish you anymore. 
You know, so it's just love and acceptance. But I imagine that because you reach a certain kind of maturity where you can do that. So I experienced both things. And with Sojin, it was a similar thing, you know, at first, you know, there was the, the grief, and then there was no grief anymore. And he also feels very close uh, to me now. So both things are important, you know, the, the, the true outburst, spontaneous grief, and the joy in the absence of grief with regard to the loved one. And the same tradition embodies that, where psychological, Western psychological tradition embodies the other one. Because they've learned more about the mind and mental health and mental disorders and whatnot. So they know how to tell you how to do it. It's time for maybe one more question. I wonder, uh, oh, there's a question. She's a marvelous last Susan, question. Please. Thank you, Rao. Is there anything that um, you return to? Bring, in, bring your mic closer to me. Is there anything that you return to here in practice that you didn't find practicing with students in China? Yeah, because they don't sit very much. So I didn't have, for two months, I didn't have my regular schedule. And I really missed that. So when I got back, it was uh, uh, really enjoyable, not only to be back home, um, but uh, to be able to go back to the schedule that James had been keeping very well. Thank you. Thank you.